0: Good morning. All right. Our scripture reading for this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 11 to 21. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 11 to 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 966. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving cause, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God If we are in our right mind it is for you for the love of christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh even though we once regarded christ according to the flesh and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel.
1: Okay, so um, is anybody happy about last Sunday night's outcome? Okay, just doing this because, you know, local happening here. Um, So the Eagles won. There may be some of you that don't know that. Um, And so if you don't care about that, you're still like observing the culture around you, so This is important to notice, Um, but especially if you're an Eagles fan or if you're someone who really doesn't like the Patriots like me, um, you're really happy about what happened last Sunday. So here's why I'm bringing this up. Um, Did any of you kind of live on that victory at all, maybe particularly the first few days of the week or what was it, Thursday? It was a pretty big parade. Was it Thursday? Pretty big parade um, in Philly. Anybody? Um, I found myself saying to Sam a couple times, hey, the Eagles won. Okay, thank you, Gail. Um, It's a true fan. So the point being, even if you were bummed about this or that, (laughs) at least the Eagles won. Did anybody go back and, like, watch the Philly Philly, you know, after Sunday night? Come on. Anybody? Okay, thank you. A few hands. Why'd you do that? You kind of want to relive the victory. You you want to celebrate it again. You want to enjoy it again. It can almost have, like, a power to give you joy again when you relive it. So, I'm bringing this up because this is just a little echo of how the gospel is supposed to operate in our lives. So, whether you're a football fan or not, whether you're an Eagles fan or not, whether you're an anti Patriots person or not, there's something to learn here about the power of the victory of the gospel. So, Jesus is better than Nick Foles. I love Nick Foles. That was great. And sin and Satan and hell are way worse as as kind of a dark, ugly foe as the Patriots are. Way darker, okay? But seriously, there is something to learn here. We are wired. We long for victory, and we are wired to live in the power of that victory, the grace of that victory the celebration of that victory. So maybe there's ways that we could do some YouTube Philly Philly equivalent with the gospel this week so that it would brighten our day, so that it would motivate us through the valleys to rejoice in the Lord always. Okay. So does that have anything to do with 2 Corinthians 5? Not really. Um, except it totally does because 2 Corinthians 5 is all about how the gospel needs to drive everything. So certainly it's a little illustration of that, but just don't want to miss the opportunity. Maybe you observed that, maybe you saw that in yourself, maybe now you have as you look back. But again, it's just a little could be just a little prompt, a little prod to teach us how to live by the power of the gospel. Way bigger victory. It's going to last a whole lot longer, forever. So to even pursue it intentionally this week and, and beyond. All right, so turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, if you're not still there, from when Tyler read those verses. Um, So as you're turning there, just think you're with me that motives really matter. I think we all know that. Um, Let's say you're running a ministry or some kind of a nonprofit for public good in the city. And let's say someone from the city with some star power, some clout, um, somebody who somebody calls you and they want to volunteer. And you're encouraged that this person even knows about your organization and wants to Um, come and help out and they care about what you're doing and you're excited about how this could benefit the work um, that you're doing, the people that you're serving. So this person shows up for the visit and it quickly becomes clear from conversation and the photos and the video that's being taken that this person's motives are really self-serving. So they don't care so much about doing good as they do about this visit making them look good. Okay, So it's obvious that they think that kindness sells, so they're using the photo op as a part of their carefully curated public image. So I don't think any of us would say, well, the main thing is that they did a good thing. I think we'd say, motives matter. This is worthless if you're using it. So motives matter, I think we all get that. My motives matter, your motives matter. Um, Our motives drive. It's what drives us to do what we do, to not do what we don't do. They govern what we say yes and no to and why we say yes and no. They get us moving to do what we ought to do. So motives matter. They matter to God. And God actually wants to shape our motives. This morning, for his glory, for our good and for the good of others, through us, Okay, so we're going to continue this morning in our study through 2 Corinthians. The title of the series is Cruciform Ministry. So ministry that's in the shape of the cross, that's shaped by the cross. So if we're followers of Jesus, then we can't be conformed to this world. The world's values, its priorities, its characteristic selfishness being turned in on itself. And pride, those are characteristic of this world. They're the opposite of cruciform living and cruciform ministry. We need to be transformed to the power of the gospel shaped by the cross of Christ. So the way that we relate to others, how we love them, how we serve them, needs to be shaped by the cross. And so this morning we're going to consider why we love and serve others. As Paul writes in, uh, again, getting at the issue of motives. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians thirteen three, you know you can give all your money to the poor, and if your motives are wrong, it's worthless. Give all your money to the poor, but if you don't have love, if it doesn't come from love, it's no good at all. So again, motives matter. Paul is this minister of reconciliation. He's an ambassador of God, and he knows, just a little context here, that his methods and his motives have come under fire in Corinth. Okay? He's been criticized. He's been slandered. These false teachers have come in to kind of lead the Corinthians astray, lead them away from Paul's leadership, and they've been attacking him, saying, ah, oh, he's so weak, he suffers so much. You know, he doesn't charge anything for his speaking, his ministry. Well, you get what you pay for. Ah, yeah, he changes his mind, he's a vacillator, all these things. And so Paul's had to defend himself, defend his ministry, and even defend his motives. The point of this, though, is not self-serving defense. Okay? He's not trying to, you know preserve his pride or anything like that. He's not defensive. He's not insecure. He's not overly concerned about what people think of him. But he is seeking for those Corinthians to not wander away from Jesus because they're wandering away from him. Those false apostles will lead them astray. And so it's dangerous if they believe these lies that those guys are selling and follow them instead of follow him. So he's going to share his motives. He's going to explain his ministry. And so not only is he seeking to win them fully back, reconciliation, but also he serves as an example to them of the motives that ought to characterize them and their lives, their ministry. So Paul's example is a way for God to help the Corinthians, but this morning for God to help us look our motives in the mirror. So we can examine ourselves. God wants to shape our lives with the right motives for life and ministry. That's what our text is all about. So let's jump in here. There's an outline in the bulletin. If that's helpful, the points will be on the slides um, here behind me as well. So first one, motivations for cruciform ministry, verses 11 to 14. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. So there's the first motivation right there, knowing the fear of the Lord. We'll come back to that. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Okay, He's living his life wide open before God. God knows his heart. He knows his motivations. Okay, And Paul also says, you ought to know as well, Corinthians, if you're honest with yourself. Selves. We're not commending ourselves to you again, verse 12, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And he's talking about those false teachers here. So look back at chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. You'll see this theme gets kicked up right off the bat. <clears throat> Paul doesn't boast like these false teachers do. They're just trying to impress with their resumes. Paul boasts in his weakness. He boasts in the cross. He boasts in Christ. And he boasts in this. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, they're not tricksters. They're not charlatans or hucksters. They're not trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the Corinthians and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. The reason it's partial and full is because when Paul visited them, in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, what we know is those letters, um, he met some serious opposition. He actually withdrew and wrote this tearful letter to really call them to repentance. Okay? And so he sent that letter with Titus. He's waiting, waiting to find out how they respond. We'll see in the next chapter in chapter 7 that they did respond, by and large, with repentance. But they hadn't come all the way back. They were still kind of holding him at arm's length. And so Partially, they were reconciled, but not fully. So that's why he's continuing to write this way. Um, He wants them to be fully reconciled to each other, ultimately because he wants them to be right before God. So this is Paul's heart in the way that he um, is speaking to them. So he wants to win the confidence of the Corinthians. He doesn't want them to be ashamed of him. He also wants them to be able to answer those who criticize him. Um, So they need to be equipped with the ability to respond to those who are criticizing Paul. So just maybe kind of a simple example, but just so that you can know why Paul writes like this. He says, "Um, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. That sounds weird. Wait, why should they boast about Paul? That sounds self-serving. It sounds prideful. Well, just a little example here. So imagine you live in a wealthy community. It's a pretty. It's, it's kind of a place of some pretty hip fashion, you know, characteristically. Um, you meet this guy. You're not a Christian. You meet this guy in a coffee shop. His faith is humble yet yet confident and sincere. His love for Jesus is infectious and thought provoking you kind of try to dismiss what he's saying but his words just get planted in you kind of like seeds in your mind in your heart and eventually you come to faith in Christ you want your neighbors and your friends who don't know Christ to know Christ, your Savior so you host this dinner party telling your friends that your life has been totally changed you want them to hear from this guy um, that God used to change your life so you invite him over you invite them over you know, dinner party he shows up He's dressed cleanly, but really simply, and, you know, he's totally out of style. Your friends kind of scoff at his appearance. A few of them are church-going folks, and maybe their pastors are, you know, really quite fashionable. So the evening doesn't really go so well, and in the weeks to follow, you hear comment after comment from these friends that kind of tempts you to be ashamed of the guy who led you to faith. And then this letter comes in the mail, and the man knows what's going on, and he lovingly, kindly, clearly gives some explanation for why he dresses as he does. It's not that he doesn't have money for clothes. It's just that he wants to give as much money as possible to this particular ministry that he's really passionate about. Okay, So as you read about this ministry, you realize how worthy a ministry this is, you start to realize this clothes thing is just really not that big of a deal. Why why am I tempted to be ashamed of him? Your values are being shaped. And not only does it kind of deal with your shame, but it also equips you to be able to fend off the criticism of your neighbors and friends. You might even boast of your mentor's lifestyle choices And you're able to answer the challenges because he explained things in the letter. So that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. It's not boastful in a prideful sense. He doesn't want them to be ashamed of him and therefore ashamed of following Jesus. So it's a loving explanation aimed at helping the Corinthians and and us as well. So Paul goes on, verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What is this all about? Well, you can imagine, can you hear the criticisms? Paul's like out of his mind. He's got to screw loose, you know? Like, okay, (laughs) you know what? If we're beside ourselves, if we're out of our minds, great, we are for God. We're willing to be fools for God's sake. We don't care if we're out of step with the culture, worldly values. Because it's all for God's sake. But if we're in our right mind, my reasoning, my, my persuasive speech towards you, my attempts to help you, to explain things to you, it's for you, it's for your good. So, if I'm in my right mind, it's for you, why do I reason and write and appeal to you? For your good. And then verse 14, the second motive, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So let's take these two motivations each in turn. First, the fear of the Lord, back in verse 11. Actually, start back in verse 10 so that we can see the flow of thought here. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So why does Paul work to persuade others? What's his motive? It's not that he's trying to manipulate anyone. He's not trying to gain a following for himself. He's not trying to puff up his sense of self-importance. This is a cruciform minister of the gospel. He is seeking to persuade others because he's living in light of eternity. The fear of the Lord is very real to him. So he knows that every human being is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he loves people too much to leave them alone without the only way that they can be prepared to stand in that day of judgment. So does that motive drive us? How much do you think of the judgment Seat of Christ that day. So, this is not a slavish fear. You know, we're going to get zapped, you know, where we cower. No, perfect love casts out all fear. But it's a healthy reverence and respect because God is the judge, and everyone, every knee will ultimately bow, either now in faith or it will be forced to in the future. Do you think we can think of that day too much? Do you think we can think of it too little? Do you think you think of it too little? As far as our motivation, how often has that crossed the, the radar screen in relation to the people around us? Maybe if we're not trying to persuade people, again, not in any sort of manipulative way, but an urgent way, Perhaps we don't know the fear of the Lord like we ought to. Perhaps we're not thinking much of the judgment seat of Christ. So think about it this way. What fear or fears are most real and influential in your life on a daily or a weekly basis? It's really important to have the mirror up to our motivations. But when we see what those fears might be, we need to respond. So listen to James here. This is, again, God has us here this morning, not by accident, but because he wants to do, a, do some work on our motivations. So listen to James 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Where he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. We don't want to see our motivations this morning if they're not what they ought to be. And then we go, oh great, and then we leave and forget about it. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So let's say this week you pray for opportunities To share Christ with someone? Is everybody planning on doing that this week? (laughs) So let's do that. But let's say an opportunity actually comes to talk to somebody about the state of their soul, to share the gospel with them. Do you ever do this like little mental filibuster thing? You know what a filibuster is. I mean, like this thing that goes on and on and on until finally the time has passed, and then we don't have to worry about it anymore. So Here's the opportunity, and I'm doing this mental dialogue like, oh, well, this and that, and then then finally it's passed. Okay, glad I didn't have to do that. What if in that moment you actually just said, okay, stop. I'm going to meditate on the day of judgment and see if that might give me some motivation to get over the hump and talk to this person. Like, what if we just did that? And we think about the end, think about how serious that day is, and then we just briefly ask for grace to love this person enough to deny our concern, it's cruciform ministry, deny our concern for our own reputation and their approval of us. That would be cruciform ministry, shaped by God-honoring motivation, the fear of the Lord. That's the first motivation. The second motivation Paul lays out is the love of Christ, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So the love of Christ controls us, or your translation might say compels us. So it presses in on Paul. It exerts influence. He can't escape this motivation this influence it's got compelling power i i actually pray along these lines fairly regularly that the burden for the lost in our lives the people around us that don't know jesus that we wouldn't be able to escape it, that it would actually land on us with some weight and stick and we'd actually care and be concerned. We couldn't just kind of busy, 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 you know, blinders on, go through week after week after week after week without seeing the souls around us. Let's pray that way, that the love of Christ would compel us. We just can't escape the influencing, motivating, compelling power that it exerts on us it's the love of christ his self-sacrificial love for us that motivates paul so you could flip it around if if we're not engaging much in loving cruciform ministry does that mean we don't know the love of christ like we ought to if we, and I mean experientially, we can, we can have all the answers in our head, but I mean really experiencing it. Kind of like really experiencing the eagle's win, and it, it has effects. So don't you want to know the love of Christ like that so that it compels you and, and it motivates you? So if the love of Christ isn't compelling us, what is compelling us? What's the most compelling thing to you on a daily basis? What motivates you on a daily basis? Do you think about your motivations? What gets you out of bed? Is it just survival? (laughs) I think sometimes we can kind of just be in the, like, I'm just trying to keep my head above water. Okay. Why? How are you going to keep your head above water? What does keeping your head above water even mean? What? is motivating you? What's compelling you? Is it money? Is it fear of failure? That can be a pretty strong motivation. How about not wanting to look bad? (laughs) How about desires for success? Desires for control or comfort or... If you notice, some of those things I listed out there, they all fall under the category of desire Or fear. The stuff that motivates us mainly is under two categories desires or fears. Fear of the Lord, love of Christ. It's really important for us to be shaped by the gospel, for our fears and desires to be shaped by the gospel the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ grabbing hold of our hearts. Changing our desires. We can love because he first loved us. So what if again, when you're presented with that opportunity to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus in the path of sacrificial love, whether it's to open your mouth and kind of take a risk sharing Christ with someone or just loving someone when you just would rather retreat into your shell and and your comfort zone. What if you paused and hesitated there, okay, I don't want to do this. I know I want to save my life. I want to pursue comfort and ease instead. What if you thought of the love of Christ? Thought. What if you pulled up the Philly Philly YouTube video? What if you thought about what Jesus had done for you? Do you think that maybe the gospel could get you over the hump, motivate you and energize you? If you were just, I'm going to just Lord, I want to see how great your love is for me so that knowing that you first loved me, I can love in this moment. So maybe something like this. I, this way of thinking about the gospel was helpful for me, encouraging me. It's kind of catalyzed or, or sparked by the way that Paul communicates it here. He says that, We've concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What does that mean? Well, the wages of sin is death, right? So we're all guilty before the judge of all the earth. We have no appeal in his court. He's seen everything that we have done, he knows every thought, he knows every desire we've ever had. He's seen everything that we've done behind closed doors, in the dark. Can't hide anything from this judge. We're guilty. We deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. But if you are a Christian, you are already dead. Okay, that, that might sound really weird, but that's such good news. Because you know what? You've already been arrested for your sin. You've already been indicted. You've already been found guilty and sentenced and condemned. You've already been executed, actually, for all your sin. The death penalty has already been carried out. Final death, hell has already been paid. Jesus really did all of that for you. So you died with Christ. You were buried with Christ. Your old life is dead and buried. All of your old shame, all of your old guilt, all of your failure, actually, past, present, future, all of it. And so you've got nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Isn't that great? Like, just, okay, we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. I've already died. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to fear. He died so that I could live not for myself. I don't have to prove anything anymore. I don't have to construct anything anymore. I don't have to, like, be okay because of my performance anymore. I am totally free. I know who I am. So I can take this risk of love right now. Nothing is ever going to be dug up against you in the future judgment at that judgment seat. It's all been paid for. So encouraging. So you start to meditate on the love of God in Christ for you, how he died, that we would die to our selfishness, that we would love as he loved, we love because he first loved us, And all of a sudden, you've got power to kind of get bumped over the hump and out of your comfort zone to love someone. He died so that we would not live for ourselves, so that we would live for him. So that we would live for him who died for us, which is where he goes in verse 15, the purpose of the cross. And he died for all that those who live new spiritual life, we're alive together with Christ, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the purpose of the cross. I mean, there's lots of purposes for the cross, but this is one of them right here. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. frees us from selfishness. We don't have to save our lives because we have eternal life. We don't have to live for our own comfort because we have eternal comfort in Christ. So why did Jesus die? Was it just to kind of cancel our sins so that we could live selfishly in this world and have our little get-out-of-hell-free card in our back pocket? No, Jesus died so that we would no longer live selfishly but for him who for our sake died and was raised. So cruciform ministry is the reflex love of the way that God has loved us in Christ. We love because he first loved us. So when his love controls us, then we are empowered to lay our lives down in love. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself up for us. So it's the purpose of the cross. This is not a small thing. It's not kind of a sidebar thing. So if this is why Jesus died for us, then this is how we are enabled to follow him so if we're actually struggling to live this cruciform ministry life we just need to focus our attention on the love of Christ and then we get the power the grace the strength to follow in his footsteps we may also need to examine our perspective are we viewing this life with new eyes the new eyes that Jesus died to give us look thirdly at the cruciform criteria in verses 16 and 17. So Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What kinds of things sometimes get in the way of us loving someone? It's a worldly obstacle. It's based on the wrong criteria. Outward appearance, remember back in verse 12? So Paul says, We we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So so Paul used to judge Jesus according to the flesh. He thought he was a weak, cursed, messianic pretender. He judged Jesus with superficial criteria. And all of that changed on the Damascus Road, right? When God confronted him, when Christ confronted him on the Damascus Road. And the way that he writes about it in Philippians 3 It used to be that his resume was his gain, and Christ was loss, like worthless and a waste of time, a fake, a pretender, and then his eyes got opened, the perspective changed, and it flipped his resume, confidence in the flesh, it was loss, it was like dung, and Christ was gain, surpassing value of knowing Christ. So the work of Christ changes everything. When we are a new creation, it changes how we view everything and everyone. We get new eyes, new evaluative criteria. So back then, Jews and Gentiles, the Jews in, the Gentiles out. Jews and Samaritans in, out. And that inhibited loving ministry, right? That's why Jesus had to tell the parable of the Samaritan, good Samaritan kind of blow that up, tear down those walls. So for us, do you sometimes view someone as below you or not worth your time and you don't minister to them in love because of it? I think we can easily, you know, have superiority, inferiority things going on, a superiority complex And we don't reach out to someone in love on the basis of those superficial criteria. But in Christ, where new creation, the old has passed, the the new has come, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, that means the playing field's level. The, The field is level at the foot of the cross. We're just servants. And so there's no one who's unworthy of our time and our attention and our love because we're not evaluating by worldly criteria anymore. We're evaluating by new creation criteria. So it breeds this humility in us. We're not better than anybody else. All have sinned, all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ died for all. The love of Christ for all kinds of people motivates us. So in that way, nothing worldly gets in the way of us carrying out the essence of cruciform ministry, which is the next point. The essence of cruciform ministry, reconciliation. Okay, look at verse 18. This is our last point here. So all this is from God. All this new creation grace, all this newness that comes, it's a gift of grace, it's from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And we read some great parallel passages during, the, during singing the songs, Romans 10, for instance. Uh, Mark and the others read these passages. So all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then this beautiful, dense, rich summary of the gospel in verse 21. For our sake, for you and me, God made him, Christ, to be sin, He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, in Christ, we, you and me, might become the righteousness of God. That is a really deep well. It's really rich. We could spend the rest of our lives studying this one, and we should. Why do we need to be reconciled? It's because we're alienated. We're at odds with the God of the universe. If you want to use familial terms, we're not on speaking terms with our Heavenly Father by nature. If you want to talk about political terms, we're guilty of high treason. You know what high treason is? It's betrayal of one's country and conspiracy against one's sovereign or government. So, U.S. Constitutional Republic, high treason is against the United States, but at many times and in many places, high treason was committed against the king. For your oath of allegiance as a citizen was to the king, the supreme governor of the land. So you know what sin is here? This is where the more we see what we've been saved from, how dark we were, what trouble we were in, the sweeter the gospel is going to be to us. And the sweeter the gospel is to us, the more we're going to be compelled to be motivated by it and to share it and be ambassadors of it. So that's why we're walking through this again. So, listen, we sided with the conspiracy, all of us, to overthrow the sovereign king of the universe. We are revolutionaries against the crown, guilty of cosmic mutiny, enemies of the state, like the kingdom of heaven state. So we deserve to be tried, convicted, sentenced to death. We were alienated for God, from God under the curse. Theologians talk about this as the great exchange. So that was our situation. What do we bring to the table? If we're going to be reconciled, all we bring is guilt and shame and treason and on and on. And that's what Jesus became on the cross, in our place. I mean, just think for a second about how much you contributed. It's so easy for us to just kind of like have amnesia about the past. I mean, if you just sinned once a day, 365 days, 75 years, like 26,000 sins, I mean, we're just so sinful, we, we can so easily make light of sin, and yet our debt is huge. I mean, just think about the call, like no other gods before me. Do not covet. Huh, okay, going to hell. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart. We are just totally hopeless and helpless, and here, this great king that we have committed high treason, cosmic insurrection and rebellion against, he sends his son in love He bore our sin, all of it, in his body on the tree. He became a curse for us so that we could be blessed because he wanted to offer terms of peace. He wanted to offer amnesty. He wanted to make reconciliation happen. He did it by taking the punishment on himself. Look at it there again. For our sake. It's all for us. It's all for love. The love of Christ compels us. He made him to be sin. Who knew no sin, Jesus was sinless, perfect, holy sacrifice. Substituting himself in our place so that in him, in Christ, when we are united to Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We get the righteousness of God. Jesus got our filth and our rebellion and our sin. I love this quote by John Stott. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. All of it's from God, from beginning to beginning. To end. And so we lay our, down our, arm, our arms, rebellion, in repentant faith. We accept full pardon, full and free, and change allegiances. We swear our allegiance to the crown. And then we get to be ambassadors. That's a high position. An ambassador for the king? We are privileged with the honor and the opportunity to be ministers of reconciliation, employing others to benefit the same ultimate benefit that we have received through Christ. The love of Christ compels us and we share the love of Christ that others might be reconciled. What a privilege, what an honor. So if we are camping out in verse 21, and soaking in the grace of the love of God in Christ. And it starts to motivate us and compel us. We will become faithful ambassadors of the great king, ministers of reconciliation, so that through us, God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So let's pray that that would happen, and then we're going to sing that that would happen, and then we'll be dismissed. So, our Father in heaven, we can only call you that this morning because of Jesus, because you have made it possible for us to be reconciled to yourself through Jesus, his blood on the cross, his substitutionary death in our place. If there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know that, transaction where they give you their sin and they receive by grace the empty hands of faith, your gift of righteousness and love and grace and forgiveness and cleansing and pardon and reconciliation. Would you save them right now? And Lord, for those of us who do know that reconciliation, would you please fill us with joy and gratitude at this love with which you've loved us, and may it compel us to be faithful ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, that your name would be hallowed in Wilmington, that your kingdom would come in Wilmington and beyond to the ends of the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.